Thank you, Dr. Vargas. I appreciate that introduction. After hearing all that, I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say. <laughs> I want to thank the IFCA for their gracious invite for me to be here this evening. I bring you greetings from Southern California Seminary. As was mentioned, I am professor of New Testament uh, in El Cajon, so it's East County, San Diego, where I teach the New Testament and Biblical Greek and hermeneutics classes, and I also direct our THM program, and I'm honored to be able to direct our publishing arm, SCS Press, which we have a booth back there and a sample of some of our publications for you. And it's been wonderful that uh, we've had so many stop by our booth already and uh, let me know and, and uh, how much they enjoy our works and pick up a few more, and that's just been really encouraging. I also bring you greetings from Revolve Bible Church, as was mentioned. That is my local church in San Juan Capistrano, uh, where I serve along with uh, Pastor Ryan Day, and uh, I have the privilege of very ominous title, scholar in residence, that uh, just a really fancy deacon is what I am at the church. Um, but we are thankful to be here, and uh, as was mentioned, RBC, Revolve Bible Church, is an IFCA church, and I'm honored to be here on their behalf, as is my wife, Shannon. <clears throat> we drove all the way from Southern California to be here with you guys. Uh, which was a beautiful drive, and we are delighted to be here at this 94th annual convention of the IFCA, a historic ministry indeed. So, since this year's theme is reclaiming biblical fundamentalism, I believe to do so, we must start by with examining our relationship to the Bible. So I've been tasked to speak on the subject of recovering biblical literacy, and much of this message is rooted in my book, A Primer on Biblical Literacy, which SCS Press was very happy to be able to give out as a giveaway in your gift bags this year at the convention. Uh, since I am the only seminary professor who, among the general speakers speaking this year, uh, much of what I have to say here tonight is going to come from that perspective, that is trends that I have seen in the academy and in the classroom, and of course, as well as in the local church. And I begin with this. In September, in September 2021 edition of Didacticus, Journal of Theological Education, I'm sure we're all up on our subscriptions to that, right? <laughs> Former executive director of the accrediting body ATS, Daniel Ailshire, was asked his thoughts about the future of theological education. Now, being a former seminary professor, as well as the head guy for the gold standard of accreditation, that is Association of Theological Schools, Ailshire's pulse on seminary education is quite commanding. And when he was probed about trends in theological, theological education that he has seen over the past 40 years, he was asked if it was easier or harder for professors to, quote, teach well today than when he first started. And in his response, Ailshire made some interesting observations. Though he couldn't say if it was easier or harder for a seminary professor teaching now than it was back in the 70s, he did say one thing is for sure, and that was it was different, or it is different. And by that, he meant that students back in the day would come to, come to seminary with a more robust church education and experience than they do today. 
He said this, quote, the culture had a higher regard for religion in general 40 years ago than it does now. See, back then, incoming students had already grown up in churches and were being educated by biblically literate pastors who labored diligently in the word of God. After all, Ephesians 3.10 says that it is through the church, not the seminary, but through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. So students back then would come to seminary, not so much to be spiritually formed, because that was already happening in their local churches, but rather to be intellectually formed by the Bible and academic theology. But now times are different for seminaries. There has been such a drop in overall church membership in the U.S. that students are coming to seminary hoping not to get the intellectual formation, but the spiritual formation that they should be getting in their local church. And that's what's given rise to spiritual formation curricula you see in so many seminaries the last 20 years. And I can attest to this. I've had students in a master's level analysis class show up on their first day with their very first physical Bible. Right? They've been in church for a while. They're Christians, of course. We wouldn't let them in otherwise. They have to have their pastoral recommendations, like any good seminary would require. But the way their church functioned on Sundays, they really didn't need to bring a Bible. They were trained on little sermonettes, you know, often evangelistic messages that become more relevant for the non-believer in the room than the Christian who's sitting there who's also needing to be equipped and is starting to feel like God is only the God of new believers. Nothing of deep substance is preached or exposited from the Bible or taught even for that seasoned believer who's sitting there thirsting for actual Bible study so they too can grow in their awareness of God's presence. So now, as seminary professors, we have the added task not just in, of, of equipping students, not just in their intellectual and academic study of theology, but also in their spiritual formation as well. Where churches drop the balls, the seminaries picked it up. And at SCS, where I teach, we did a, a, an assessment recently comparing our programs with other like-minded seminaries, and we found that we were already ranking above other seminaries in the amount of Bible class, classes we offer, from our entry-level programs all the way up to our doctoral uh, degrees. Yet, because of the lack of biblically literate Christians who are coming into the seminary, who unfortunately have been coddled by biblically illiterate pastors— our response to that assessment was to add even more courses on how to properly read the Bible. But as many have pointed out, whether it's George Guthrie or Michael Watson or even Daniel Elshire earlier, the responsibility of training believers to develop in their knowledge of God through his holy scriptures and grow in their love for Christ and in their love for his church and for sound doctrine, the primary responsibility lies not with Bible colleges and seminaries, but with the home and the local church. These are the most important training grounds for growing in biblical literacy, even over Christian schools. A generational discipleship centered on scripture must begin with the family and in the local church. 
which then produces the next generation of Christians who are literate in the scriptures. And specifically, I would argue, the local church is the premier training grounds for recovering biblical literacy. Pastors making it their aim at everything the church does, from the donut table to the parking lot to the pulpit ministry, all of it connects back to the Bible. A true textual community, as John Salheimer would say. So if you would, please turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. A familiar verse, familiar passage here on the inspiration of Scripture. I'm going to read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and verse 17. It says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Stop right there. Two positives, two negatives. All right? For teaching, for training, for correction, and for reproof. Verse 17, so that, or in order that, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Did you catch that link between verses 16 and 17? There's an important link there. The Apostle Paul makes a direct connection between the Word of God and being a man of God. Greek word there, anthropos. It can be used in an individual sense and a generic sense. And here I believe it is the generic sense, being a member of the human race, a man or woman of God. To be a man of God is the result, according to this passage, of being a man of the Word of God. The two can't be separated. To know God is to know God's word. And to know God's word is to know God. If you know the written word, you know the living word. If you are literate in the scriptures, you are literate in God's revealed will. So I have one proposition for you. One big idea, some of you who don't like to take notes are like, yes, I got one point. And here it is. Let me gift wrap it for you. This is the one big central proposition for my message tonight. It is this. A Christian's relationship with God is directly proportionate to their relationship with God's word. I have had a lot of pushback saying that sentence in classes and other lectures I've given. It's a simple truth, but it's profound if we take what we just read literally with that connection there. A Christian's relationship with God is not proportionate to their relationship with dreams and visions or other things they might be getting or the chosen on TV or something like that. Their relationship to God is directly proportionate with their relationship to God's word, the Bible. In other words, being biblically literate is fundamental, to use our word, for a Christian's relationship with God. But the state of true spiritual formation centered on the Bible in this country is, frankly, pathetic. I have several recent statistics for you. There are people like stats. I'm not always the biggest fan of statistics because you know how the question was asked, but I got some reputable statistics here taken from a combination of sources 
That is the World Christian Database, published by Brill, and the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, published by Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, the Barna Research Group, Ed Stetzer's article, The Epidemic of Biblical Illiteracy in Our Churches, from Christianity Today, and Al Mohler's The Scandal of Biblical Illiteracy. Here's just a few stats. Only 20% of Christians surveyed can name all four Gospels. That means 88 out of 10 Christians, 80%, cannot name Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Let's narrow it down a little bit to evangelicals who are supposed to have a high view of Scripture. 81% of evangelicals believe, quote, God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. Oh, it gets more pathetic. This one you may have heard before. This one always, it's, I feel guilty chuckling at it every time. I shouldn't, but it is funny, but it's sadly funny. 12% of evangelicals believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. <laughs> Yet, we live in a country, another statistic for you, where the average American owns at least three Bibles. That's odd. That means we live in a nation that has been shaped by Scripture and formed around Scripture, but apparently no one actually really knows the Scriptures. At virtually every stage of Indo-European history, which includes the United States, the Bible was there informing the culture. Shakespeare's works alone contain over 1,200 references to the Geneva Bible. That, in turn, used English words that William Tyndale coined in his 16th century translation of the Bible. It is from William Tyndale that we get much of our Christianese that we just take for granted today. Phrases that Americans just take for granted, like, my brother's keeper, good Samaritan, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, salt of the earth, scapegoat, atonement, on and on and on. These are words that William Tyndale coined in English, translating from the Greek and the Hebrew. So it's not surprising that almost without exception, professors from Brown, Harvard, MIT, Princeton, and other prestigious institutions view knowledge of the Bible as critical for good education. And that might be surprising to some of you. That sounds like I just rattled off a list of apostate schools. Well, as one Northwestern professor put it, quote, the Bible is the most influential text in all of Western culture, end quote. Yet the stats, they remain pathetic. Here's some more. 30% of Christian parents don't know that Adam and Eve, David and Goliath, or the Good Samaritan are in the Bible. And I would encourage you most certainly to come back Thursday night to hear from Gary Gilley, who's going to address even more pathetic stats and hone in on how we can actually recover accuracy in our theology. See, sessions like Gary's on Thursday, Dave Dietz tomorrow, Richard Vargas last night, and mine right now are necessary. Clearly, something is wrong. Too many churches have lost their focus. Maybe like the church at Ephesus, they've lost the love they once had. There are a lot of pastors in this room today, and I'm speaking to our own tribe even right now. Maybe we're part of the problem. Like the church at Laodicea, you got to ask yourself, has my church cooled off? 
Have we grown unenthusiastic or lukewarm to something that we want held on to, that intimate developing awareness of our Lord's very presence through his written word? So how did we get here? How did we go from seminary students first being trained by their pastors and in Bible and being formed spiritually in their local church a generation ago to them coming in now with hardly an elementary knowledge of the scriptures? How did we go from American Christians adopting themes from the scriptures for their business names and adopting laws into our country that are from the scripture and yet cannot even tell you in the Bible where those themes are? I'll give you a reason how this has happened. My own contribution of a reason why that might be, but let me build up to it first. Excuse me. Several years ago, excuse me once more, Several years ago, Howard Hendricks, great professor, if you've read his book, The Living Word, he was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for decades, he has now passed, but several years ago, Howard Hendricks foresaw this dreadful, dreadful problem of what I would call biblical illiteracy. So he offered six reasons why he thinks people do not study their Bibles and specifically Christians. And maybe you can relate to one of these. Now, I've summed them up in my own words. This is my paraphrasing of the six reasons that Hendricks gave years ago for why people do not study their Bibles. Number one, irrelevance. They don't think it works. The Bible is this old, dusty book written by a bunch of old dead guys. They're relevant for a 21st century American culture. Number two, technique. They simply just don't know how to study the scriptures. Number three, insecurity. They think one must be a pastor or be professionally trained. And I've seen this happen even with really good Bible-centered doctrine churches. There's still that idea that the pastor has to be so separated from the sheep, give them all this wisdom from the pulpit, Don't get dirty with the pen in the pen of the sheep. Don't give up your secret sauce of your exegesis, how you came up with those positions. Just make them dependent on you instead of training disciples of Christ. And so a result of this is people are just insecure. The average Christian thinks you got to be a pastor or somehow some type of clergy or, or a professor, professionally trained to read the Bible. Number four, busyness. We would all relate to that one, especially in America especially where I live in Southern California, it is crazy busy. No, simply, you don't have the time to read the Bible. Number five, they are critical. They simply just believe the Bible is not reliable. And they are more influenced by critical historical or historical critical scholars that give them this garbage, generally during Easter and Christmas on Nat Geo and the History Channel. right. And finally, number six reason why Christians or people do not study their Bible, they're uninterested. They think the Bible's boring. Maybe you can relate to one of those reasons, okay? But what I find telling in these reasons is something that is not mentioned as to why Christians don't read their Bibles, and this is it. None of those six reasons suggest a lack of access to Scripture, Everyone in 21st century America can obtain a Bible in some format. 
The latest stats from the World Christian Database reports that 91 million Bibles are printed globally every year, and America in particular boasts an embarrassing amount of translations, all the way up to 450 translations, depending on how they're counted. So the problem is not that we don't have enough Bibles. Here it is. Here's my reason. The problem is that we've become too familiar with the Bibles that we have. That, ladies and gentlemen, is my own offering, my own major reason for why there is this epidemic of biblical illiteracy among American Christians. We've become too familiar with the Bible without actually knowing the Bible. Remember, the average guy or gal walking around outside owns at least three Bibles. Another statistic is that nine out of every ten American homes have at least one Bible in it. So what's happened? (laughs) The Bible has become a a familiar relic, a good luck charm just to to have in your house just in case. And out of this familiarity... We've branded themes out of the Bible. We've made a business out of it. Clothing, jewelry, marketing, CCM, contemporary Christian music, Christian celebrityism. We've, we've elevated pastors to the, the, the status of being a celebrity. Businesses trivializing biblical themes from Trinity Pet Care by my house to Daniel's Diet Plan to Goliath's Gym. We've domesticated an ancient, holy, and bloody faith. Breathments called testaments to Jesus' bobbleheads. What I'm saying right now, I actually have a slide. I could show you. I actually teach this part in one of my classes, and I'll show you pictures. This is legit. To biblical beard oil. I must admit, I actually almost bought that one. To Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. To top 40 gospel hits. We made an entire genre of music out of this that will give you every element of bad theology without ever preaching the gospel within these gospel songs. Entire industries merchandising the ancient faith that was birthed from the blood of our Savior. So I say, turning Christianity into an industry... has made us illiterate in the scriptures. And I think especially American evangelicals are especially guilty of this. We've grown dependent on gimmicks about the Bible, but we lack a firsthand knowledge of the Bible. The spiritual diet of too many believers is about knowing about or diet of knowing about scripture, but not actually knowing scripture itself. And on the academic level, this familiarity with Scripture's themes shows up in another way. Interesting way I've seen. Overly zealous young men who love theology without biblical studies. They know some theological terms. They know a little something about theological systems. They may even know some famous theologians in church history, but they don't know how to inductively exegete the scriptures. A professor friend of mine at Cedarville University calls this the cage stage. 
that is arguing for, for finer points of theological detail without any humility and without being able to exegete their points from the Bible itself. And these types can come off as what he says, quote, self-appointed saviors of orthodoxy, yet totally lack a consistent hermeneutical method. Listen, the Bible should drive our theology, not the other way around. The Bible is the horse, the theology is the the cart. This means we need to develop a first-hand relationship with the Word of God before we attempt to disprove Calvinism or discredit Arminianism. We got to get vintage, I like to call it. I love that word vintage. Ever since I turned past 40, now mid-40, now going to my late 40s, vintage is a good word. (laughs) Old school Bible study. That art of recovering the ancient mystery of sensing God's presence, not through dreams, not through visions, not through television or podcast, but through his word by properly exegeting the meaning and the significance of his word. Maybe, just maybe, we need more Bible exegetes and less theologians. Remember, The order goes Bible, then theology. This is our heritage. Knowing the word firsthand has been the legacy of believers since ancient times for both Jewish people and Christians. The prophet Daniel, you may remember this, had been kidnapped as a teenager and lived in Babylon during the entire captivity of Israel in Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 10, he's visited by an angel and he's given that terrifying vision of latter days. And he's told in verse 12, not to fear, quote, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. Did you hear that? Daniel had housed up the scriptures in his heart to understand them and therefore understand God. And God rewarded him. See, like Daniel, to be a man of God is to know the word of God. This defined the Jewish nation, the very apple of God's eye. It is still their creed today, the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4, the most important confession for the Jewish people, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, the hero O Israel, the Lord is one, the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one goes on to say, quote, you shall bind these words as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Wow, think of that. You shall bind these words on, as a sign on your hand. Easy access. You shall put them as frontlets between your eyes, seeping your mind. And everybody, all the pagans around you would know that you are belonging to Yahweh. You shall even write them on the doorposts of your houses. Men and women of God read the word. They study the word and they even write out the word. And not just with Israel. Reading and writing, that is, knowing the scriptures, has also been the legacy for the Christian church. 
Christians are known historically as people of the book. If you open up a Quran, you will see that phrase being said of us. We are people of the book. Men like William Tyndale were strangled and burned to death for translating the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into English. And so were so, 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 so were so many others leading up to and following the Protestant Reformation. See, as people of the book, we read, we study, we defend the scriptures. We're not ashamed of conservative, even fundamentalist doctrine because such doctrine is based on a grammatical, historical, hermeneutic, or in other words, a plain interpretation of the text. The scriptures are the written revelation of God. They reveal God, his will for us. They don't conceal him. They reveal him. He wants us to understand his will in his word. So reading the written word grows us closer to the living word. 2 Timothy 2.15 is a life verse for me, especially when I first entered seminary and I had a beloved uh, biblical languages professor who's no longer, long, no longer with us, Dr. Thomas Rahm. He wrote a grammar in Greek as well as a grammar in Hebrew. He was a brilliant man. Um, I remember my first day of class, he had said some things to kind of dispel the, the, the fear in the room. I went to 2 Timothy 2.15, and he pulled out his Greek New Testament, and we read it, or at least he read it in Greek, because none of us can read Greek at that time, because it was first day of class. And he read this, Spudazzo! That's how he starts, because that's how the text in verse 15 of 2 Timothy 2 start. You might understand it or remember it as, do your best, make every effort, be zealous to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Spudazzo, the great verb. He drilled that in my head. It was driving my wife nuts. I would say spudazzo every time, everywhere we went. Spudazzo, spudazzo. I was dreaming spudazzo. Be zealous. Make every effort. Be diligent. That is the first word in verse 15, fronted in the clause to show its emphasis. Do your best. Spudazzo to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed by instrumental participle, rightly handling the word of truth. I do believe an urgent danger exists in, in the average pew every Sunday, and it is this. Sincere Christian men and women simply do not study the Bible for themselves. Remember, To be a man or woman of God, you must know the word of God firsthand so you can know God. See, we tend to be satisfied with only with what our favorite preacher tells us, our Christian author or podcast says about the Bible, rather than examining it personally. And in our camp, conservative biblical fundamentalists, right, the only true Christians in America, right, just kidding, in our camp, we can resemble those Corinthians who organized factions around Apollos, Peter, and Paul, 1 Corinthians 1.12. Think of that. They weren't organizing factions around the Joel Osteens of the day. They were being called out for organizing factions causing divisions around Apollos and Peter and Paul, all of whom who held a high view of Scripture. That can be our tendency to do that, to be clicky around our favorite good, solid Bible teacher and not actually read the word ourselves. 
That always strikes me. Those Corinthians didn't latch on to some charismatic heretics. They weren't forming cliques around the sons of Sceva who were trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, or the same Jesus who Paul proclaimed in Acts 19, and they weren't building tribes around those preeminent super apostles that were intoxicating this very same church who were in reality just false teachers. No. They were forming tribes around the best Bible teachers in town and being called out for it. Apollos, Cephas, or Peter, and Paul. How does that look for our tribe today? We can feel proud in saying, I follow John MacArthur. I follow David Jeremiah. I follow Chuck Swiddell. You know, the more erudite among us may take comfort in declaring, I follow John Calvin. I follow Charles Spurgeon. I follow John Walvoord. I follow Charles Ryrie. We can even take pride not in the Bible itself, but in translations of the Bible or our favorite study Bible. As a seminary professor, I see this type of tribalism all the time. In fact, I don't even allow students to bring study Bibles into the room anymore. They need to learn how to read scriptures without any help. Except mine teaching, of course. (laughs) Just thought of that. But we can be guilty of this. I have. Serious Christians only use the NASB. Uh, That is either the 77 edition or 1995 edition. Definitely not the 2020 edition. There's even been a recent change in that group. Now serious Christians only use the LSB. Published by 316 Bible Publishers over there. Great translation. I told uh, Chris Scotty I would mention them tonight. He just didn't know how I was going to mention them. <laughs> Great translation. I know, I know many of the men on the, the translation team. Fantastic translation. If you're an old liberal, you use the RSV. Or if you're a new liberal, it's the NRSV. If you're reformed, it's got to be the ESV. If you're woke, it's the NIV and the, or the TNIV. Or maybe the NLT or even the message. If you're a true Christian fundamentalist, it's got to be the KJV. Yeah. Well, wait a second. Not the 1611 edition, or either. The, or it's got to be either the 1638 or the 1769 version. Or was it the other way around? I don't remember. See, these are silly wars, even within our camp. Before we call out the heretics and the extreme charismatics, let's do some policing within ourselves, too. We can resemble those Corinthians causing factions around the best Bible teachers and best Bible translations. These are silly wars within our camp. Orthodox or conservative biblical Christians over which study Bible one should use. And people pride themselves over it. It's tribalism. Whether it's the Ryrie study Bible, the MacArthur study Bible, the David Jeremiah study Bible, or going all the way back to the Holy Scully itself, the Schofield reference Bible. We conservatives, we fundamentalists, we biblical Christians can attach our spirituality to a famous name. We can easily follow our heroes without ever confirming if our hero's instructions actually lines up with scriptures, with the scripture. And thankfully, in the cases I just mentioned, of course, you know, they do, for the most part. There is a lesson here, and it is this. It is critical for Christians to understand the Bible for themselves. The danger is when we attach our spirituality 
to another human. Again, how many pastors are guilty of this? Train your people how to read the scriptures. Don't just don't give them sermons. How did you reach those conclusions? And don't be so paranoid that there are people that don't understand what you're saying. That's always going to happen. My pastor, Ryan Day, preaches, I understand hardly anything he says. But he makes good points. And I talked to him later afterward. and might come to find out he was right. Teach your Bible how to read the scriptures for themselves and don't worry about the consequences that it might be too technical. It'll catch. They'll catch it under that faithful exposition Sunday in and Sunday out. We need to be like those noble Bereans in Acts 17 who didn't even let the apostle Paul preach a message unvetted. They were told, examined the scriptures, keeping a close eye on context, on a crino, gets translated, examine, inspect, discern, as BDAC translates this word, to engage in careful study of a question. That is what's translated as they examined the scriptures. And technically, they were examining the scriptures, present active participle. And we're doing so daily to see if these things that Paul was saying were so. Now that is spudazzo. They weren't only making sure that they were diligent before Yahweh by inspecting the scriptures, but making sure that the apostle Paul himself was correctly handling the word of truth in its proper context. Now that's what I call being biblically literate. And with this comes another caution, if I may. Becoming dependent on mere spoonfuls of scripture, like a daily devotional verse, right? I have nothing against devotionals. Well, I shouldn't say that because I guess I do because I'm going to be critical of it. But those devotionals that take one verse at a time, they just get one verse and just ripped out of context. They can be dangerous. They can also be very helpful and good. Got to use discernment with these. These are verses usually isolated from their context. Prosperity teachers do this all the time. And contrary to the subtle message, God did not drop the Bible out of the sky one verse at a time. And it's a good thing, too. I I experienced this myself when I was first saved, very early on in my Christian walk. The first, I had one of those old school Rolodexes, you know, where you had like every day there was that verse to meditate on, reflect, or claim you know, and you just turn the thing for each day. Well, I'll never forget one day, the verse to meditate on, to reflect, to read, to claim even, was this. It's from the New Testament. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. For the biblically literate in the room, does anybody have a problem with that? What might have been the problem? Yeah. That was Satan. The manufacturers of that devotional clearly never bothered to look up the passage because had they done so, they would have discovered that verse was in fact the words of Satan as he was tempting Jesus to worship him. And that's what I was being told on to meditate on, to reflect on, to claim even that day. See, brothers and sisters, laziness is the familiar culprit that often keeps us from reading and learning and savoring entire passages in which individual verses are sandwiched. To be a man of God, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, we must truly know the word. And this starts with reading individual verses in light of surrounding verses. 
In other words, it's context. Context is embedded within the idea of biblical literacy. So I've been talking a lot, dancing around biblical literacy, raises the question, what exactly is biblically, biblical literacy? And what does it mean to recover biblical literacy? As I was tasked to preach tonight. Well, I don't think that it means to gain mastery over all of Scripture's context, uh, contents. The goal is much more modest than that. It's wonderful to memorize the scripture. I totally encourage that. But it doesn't mean that you have to memorize every single verse from Genesis to Revelation before you can say, hey, I'm biblically literate. Excuse me. The goal is a little bit more modest than that, I think. As I say in the book that was a giveaway this year, a primer on biblical literacy, I say that biblical literacy centers on two key ideas. Awareness and proficiency. Awareness and proficiency. Awareness and proficiency are always attainable. Technical expertise is not. Therefore, I think, biblical literacy is achievable for every Christian, whether you're 5 or 95. And how does this look? Well, I think biblically literate Christians progressively develop in their awareness of the God of the universe by reading through the scriptures while gaining proficiency in their understanding of scripture's meaning. In other words, being a biblical literacy is achieved when the Christian is able to recognize the various historical contexts and literary genres in scripture that God used to reveal himself. That's awareness. And from there they can discern or examine the scripture's meaning expressed through those contexts. It's proficiency. So the goal is always what it is, increasing, increase, developing an awareness and proficiency. That is the goal of biblical literacy. It's a continual journey, which is why it's achievable for everyone. For everyone. I often ask students in one of my Bible classes or hermeneutics classes if they think they're biblically literate. You'd be surprised. Almost all of them say yes. You know, like they crossed that line. And yes, I got my gold medal of biblical literacy. No, I think it's a constant developing in the awareness of God's presence through his word by growing in our proficiency of executing his word. And I think that provides the guide rails for responsible application. So as, I, as we wind down here, I want to leave you with what I feel is the absolute essential for biblical literacy. These I would call the non-negotiables of being a person of the book, a man of the word of God. And for other technical matters, please read the book that was a giveaway. Um, I go into this a little bit more in detail. But as for the essentials that I'm going to give you right now, and we're going to close, all of them are character-driven. Some might even say they're existential. Five things. I'm going to unpack them. Being regenerate, prayerful, humble, obedient, and diligent. Okay? First and foremost, let's unpack these. True biblical literacy can only be achieved by someone who is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. That should be obvious, but it's not. I am an active member of the world's largest Bible society, an academic society, Society of Biblical Literature, and sometimes I feel like I'm the only Christian there. Right? There are some of the most brilliant scholars writing commentaries and dissertations that become monographs and peer-reviewed journal articles that in time trickle down to the pulpit in some other popular-level commentary, but originally written by someone who's not even a believer. They give the most interesting historical aspects of the text and even exegete the Greek and the Hebrew, 
but they don't have the eyes to be able to submit to it, and they don't have the eyes of faith, right? So a biblically literate Christian is a Christian not in name only, but also in their relationship to God through personal faith in Christ. In New Testament terms, we might call this being regenerated or born again in John 3, 3. John 3, 7, 1 Peter 1, 3, and verse 23. This means the Holy Spirit indwells the person, leads them, unites them to other believers, and helps them in their overall understanding of all spiritual matters, including Scripture itself. All other requirements of biblical literacy are based on that one essential precondition. A biblically literate Christian is a regenerate man or woman of God. They are born again. Second, a prayerful attitude is necessary. As the psalmist prayed in Psalm 119.20, make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. The Christian, the Christian who is biblically literate or developing in their biblical literacy looks up to God for understanding before they look down to his word to read. Right? Because ultimately, it is God in Christ who opens the minds to understand the scripture, making biblically literacy radically, ultimately, dependent on him. I'm always struck by the Jesus in Luke 24, walking with the two disciples and road to Emmaus, and he had to open their minds for them to understand the scriptures. So a prayerful attitude is certainly necessary. Third, along with prayer, the biblically literate Christian demonstrates Humility. They are, in James 1.19, his words, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Right? This type of person genuinely desires to learn the Bible, or learn from the Bible, and are willing to readjust any preconceived beliefs or theology that may conflict with Scripture's clear, direct teaching. That speaks to the cage stage people I said earlier I talked about, the overly zealous people that know theology without Bible. They're willing to go toe-to-toe over the finest little theological points and think that they are the saviors of orthodoxy when they need humility. Fourth, biblical literacy requires obeying Scripture's teaching where applicable. Okay, this is what James called being a doer of the word in James 1.22, echoing Jesus' penetrating remarks about those calling him Lord while not actually doing what he said. In Luke 6.46, see, intellectual apprehension of the Bible can be attained by anyone, but it is only the biblically literate Christian who can submit to his divine authority. And finally, fifth, the absolute essentials, these five essentials, of biblical literacy, diligence, spudazzo. I just want another excuse to say that word, spudazzo. If you didn't know any biblical Greek coming in, you're leaving with that word, spudazzo. Diligence, being diligent. Diligence is a critical step in becoming biblical literate, biblically literate. This type of Christian makes every effort before God to rightly handle his word and gain his approval. This diligence assumes integrity on the part of the man of God and their reverence for the scriptures. So taken together, the absolute necessary requirements of biblical literacy are this, being born again, maintaining a prayerful attitude, expressing genuine humility, demonstrating joyful obedience, and zealously striving for diligence. And these are all very personal. They are individual. 
But there is also another vital element to consider, which widens the focus past self to include others. And it's often the missing factor in these types of discussions on biblical literacy. But I think it's crucial if we're going to reverse those embarrassing stats from earlier and work to recover biblical literacy. And in the book, when you read it, I call it the crucial X factor for biblical literacy. See, biblical literacy should not lead to fat heads or big egos, but to transform lives that mature in their understanding of God and joyfully submit to the authority of Christ. But there's an important link that often goes unnoticed. Spiritual maturity and biblical literacy are connected by fellowship. In other words, the premier avenue through which Christians develop both biblical literacy and spiritual maturity is in fellowship with other Christians. This, brothers and sisters, is the crucial X factor, both to develop in and recover biblical literacy. Because the New Testament knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christians. Consider this. Never is one of Jesus' disciples portrayed as being alone or isolated from one another. They always learned and ministered together as a group under Christ, or at least in pairs or triads, right? And from this, we can infer that Christians develop their awareness and proficiency of Scripture in community with other Christians. As Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 tell us, not to forsake meeting together, but encouraging one another. The love and good works as the day approaches. See, it's in context of discipleship and regular gatherings among the saints that Christians most aptly learn the Bible's major connecting points and content. Assembling on the first day each week for worship and the faithful preaching of Scripture has been a premier avenue for learning the Bible ever since the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> As Paul stated in Ephesians 3.10, I quoted it earlier, it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. For two millennia, discipleship and fellowship have proven to be the essential resources for Christians to understand, or as I like to say, to own their Christian faith. They are no longer dependent on their parents or their grandparents, and they're no longer dependent on their favorite preacher or podcaster. They grow and own their Christian faith in discipleship. Believers encouraging other believers in the scriptures, motivated by their shared reverence for the Lord and love for his saints. We're doing that here tonight, aren't we? Throughout this convention, even. We're going to continue doing that throughout this convention. But that has to continue. You know, when we get down off this mountain, we're all on the spiritual high throughout this week. I know I certainly am. And on a drive home, I'm going to be like, oh, man, this is lame. I'm going to go back. <laughs> all right? We got to continue that when we get back to our normal, everyday lives. Quite simply, here it is. Biblically literate Christians go to church. Consistently. All the pastors in the room like, amen, yeah. You can just get more to come on Sundays. It's absolutely true. Biblically literate Christians go to church consistently. They've made a commitment to their local church that's committed to biblical literacy. 
I love that. I'm going to give a plug for my own local church, Revolve Bible Church in San Juan Capistrano. We had IBL come out, did some wonderful training with us a couple years ago. We recrafted our vision statement and mission statement, and it was just absolutely wonderful. And within our new vision statement, we say we are a community faithfully committed to biblical literacy. I love that. And of course, we're under the faithful exposition of our pastor, Ryan Day, or even this last Sunday, one of our other pastors, Corey Scheid, was preaching. I get to preach and teach. We are making sure that we are training our people under the word, having classes on methods of inductive study. Yes, even for the brand new believer. You know, do not be, again, to the pastors in the room, do not be intimidated to actually teach your people in inductive exegesis and hermeneutical principles. Teach them the big words. Don't be intimidated by it. Christians serving together under the faithful exposition of Scripture being preached each week. We see this very thing, by the way, in the Didache, that earliest Christian document outside the New Testament, probably even contemporary with the New Testament. As a manual for worship, baptism, and Christian living, the Didache, that is Greek for teaching, the Didache of the Apostles, or the teaching of the Apostles, gives us a window into the most primitive Christianity while the Apostles and Prophets were still roaming the earth. And it states this in chapter 4, verse 2 of the Didache, quote, And you will seek every day the presence of the saints in order that you may rest upon their words. Oh, yes. Christians have always gone to church. It is where we find rest and encouragement, conviction and discipleship with other believers revolving around both the living word and the written word. As with anything that holds value, being biblically literate doesn't just fall in your lap. Right? It requires a radical love for God, which means you have a love for those, or you have a love for those for whom Jesus died and a love for his word, the scriptures. It requires a love for actual fellowship and discipleship. It requires a love to love the unlovable, that annoying guy in your church that you can't stand. That's the test. That's the one that needs the love the discipleship, the training. So as I've been saying throughout this talk, to know God is to know God's word. And to know God's word is to know God. If you know the written word, you know the living word. So as I close, remember my big idea for tonight. A Christian's relationship with God is directly proportionate to the relationship with God's word. Therefore, being biblically literate is fundamental for a Christian's relationship with God. Let us be true men and women of the word, growing in our love for God, the very God of the word. Let us repent of ever trifling with the word, or even as Psalm 5017 describes of the wicked, casting his word behind us. Instead, may we be thankful for it, zealous to read it and study it and defend it so the world may know that we are biblically literate believers who truly honor his word. Amen? All right. Why don't you pray with me, please? Oh, Holy Father, we thank you for this Holy Fellowships night. We are blessed to be in a place where we don't have to be looking over our shoulders when so many brothers and sisters have to. We have heard testimonies throughout this week already of pastors who are here 
pastoring churches back home or are persecuted and live in fear, but yet you give them the strength of faith to be committed to your truth and to live for your glory. God, I pray, Lord, that you bless all of us here tonight to have that conviction. Let us not leave this this convention without wanting to know your word better, without wanting to study it, read it, listen to it. Oh God, forgive us for being so familiar with your Bible. Help us, Lord, to have a personal relationship with you through a personal relationship with your word. We thank you, dear God, for giving us your written revelation that you have revealed yourself to us. You have not left us in the dark in this world. You have given us a compass, the Holy Scriptures. We bless you, Father. We thank you. We ask God that for the rest of this convention, let us leave here developing in our biblical literacy so we can be better glorifiers and defenders of your truth. We praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.